So uh, I'm from UCC and my research has been funded by IRCHSS and I'm just finishing up my doctoral work. Um, this paper happens to stem from my doctoral research, which aims to examine the nature of loyalties and by implication identities in the Pale during the Nine Years' War. My research has, to my surprise, revealed that the majority of Old English Catholic Palesmen actually supported the Crown during the 1590s crisis. However, studies such as mine are admittedly skewed because they are largely restricted to persons of nobility and office due to the content of available sources. Nevertheless, there is some information to, or good evidence to be found regarding the wealthier members of the mercantile class. So for this paper, I've chosen Nicholas Weston because he provides an exception to the majority of Old English Palesmen for whom we have adequate records. Firstly, unlike the country Drentry, for whom we have the greatest records, Weston was an untitled city dweller. Secondly, he wasn't a martial man, he was a businessman, but he did provide the state with equally valuable material assistance. Thirdly, he differed from the majority of Old English lords and the rest of his community in a very fundamental way. He was a Protestant. While Weston was a member of the, mercantile, uh, of the social elite and can no way be considered representative of the general population, his experiences and actions during this war do provide another perspective for the study of Old English or society at the end of the 16th century. As a resident of Dublin, Weston's experiences must have differed from those inhabiting the rural and border areas of the Pale. He was relatively immune to rebel assaults. It was only if border defences in the hands of men like the Baron of Delvin collapsed that there was any serious threat of a rebel invasion. But despite the protection of this distant frontier, this war took a massive toll on urban areas. The Pale's urban population suffered under the burdens of supporting large numbers of Crown soldiers, constant material and monetary levies, famine, disease and fatal accidents like the 1597 gunpowder explosion. The Nine Years' War impacted the daily functioning of municipalities and the lives of urban inhabitants. Therefore, the actions and experiences of individuals like Weston do deserve attention. The English state was deeply suspicious of the old English country gentry for a number of reasons, particularly on account of their religious nonconformity and their bicultural family and political ties. But it was equally suspicious of the inhabitants and merchants of Irish towns. Open Catholicism and familial associations were as much a problem within the walls of Dublin City as they were outside. But a more serious concern relating to the merchants was their business affiliations. Just as the country nobility were motivated by the increased income of potential land rewards, the merchants like Weston were motivated by potential financial gains through trade. There is substantial evidence in contemporary records to indicate that the old English merchants helped fuel Hugh O'Neill's rebellion through the munitions trade. English observers expressed surprise at the sophistication and furnishing of O'Neill's army, which could, and this would have required a constant supply of munitions and other military supplies. Hiram Morgan has explained that in the early stages of the rebellion, while Hugh O'Neill was still considered a commander of royal forces, he had exploited his position in order to secure munitions through local merchants. This was particularly the case in his acquisition of lead roofing. According to one informant, Nicholas Weston was the man who had been commissioned to supply O'Neill with 20 tons of lead, but as God would, the Earl got but six. It is well documented that O'Neill converted this lead into bullets. However, six tons of lead would not have made enough bullets to fight this war, and it's highly unlikely that he could have purchased and stored enough munitions to last the duration of such a large-scale war. Although there's plenty of evidence to say that, that the Spanish sent material assistance to O'Neill, Spanish shipments of arms and treasure were sporadic and could not have met the demands of this rebellion either. The reality was that Hugh O'Neill had secured many supply sources. In addition to what he had stockpiled and received out of Spain, uh, a significant proportion of O'Neill's munitions were transported from out of Scotland, England, and other places, by old English merchants. It should be noted that these are the same merchants who were shipping zealous Irish Catholic clerics back from the continent into Ireland and shipping Irish Catholic students off to the continent to go to university. 
to the chagrin of the state, there remained enough enterprising merchants within Ireland who were willing to profit from supplying the enemy. Thomas Stafford complained that Irish townsmen were the principal aiders, abettors, and upholders of this unnatural rebellion, which proceeded partly out of malice for the state for matters of religion, but principally for their own benefit. Stafford explained that these, these merchants first brought up the bought up the country commodities at their own prices, that is, cheaper than the Crown, Crown Commissioners could buy the same. They then sold these commodities to the Royal Army rank and file whenever the soldiers managed to obtain disposable cash. But the unreliable dispensation of army pay meant the Crown soldiers were not a reliable source of income. This, however, could be remedied through alternative business practices, and merchants were well known to issue their merchandise to the rebels underhand at very excessive rates. Indeed, Fines Morrison complained that the rebels would give such extreme and excessive prices that they will never be kept from them. The same situation applied to the merchants' international trading interests. While war presented certain hazards to overseas trade due to embargoes, piracy, and detainment by foreign enemies, it could also be a particularly profitable time for business due to an elevated demand for military supplies and a corresponding price inflation. Thus, taking advantage of present economic circumstances, many pale merchants intent on profit played a crucial role in the survival of Hugh O'Neill's rebellion. The scale of the problem is highlighted by numerous calls to legislate against trade between the Irish townsmen and the rebels. As early as August 1595, the Dublin administration had issued a proclamation against the transporting of any munitions intended for trade with the Confederates. This stipulated confiscation of all goods and imprisonment for all offenders. This proclamation, however, failed to halt illegal arms trading. And in June 1596, Captain Dowdall informed Burley that the rebels continued to purchase munitions from the merchants of every town in this kingdom. The following year, Edward Fitton complained that Irish merchants were transporting substantial military supplies out of England to sell to the rebels. Like so many other English officials, he wanted to take action. However, this wasn't something that could be handled easily because it would require cross-channel communication and cooperation between authorities in Ireland and England. Thus, Fitton shared his knowledge with the mayor of Chester, Thomas Smith, as well as the sheriff of Manchester and his deputy, John Ashton, instructing them to stay upon the coast all that were Irish merchants. Through this primitive Interpol system, an investi a thorough investigation of ships was conducted at all English ports, but with very little success. Uh, Thomas Smith reported that he had searched all kinds of ships at Chester and Liverpool, but had found nothing. While the state made little progress in stemming illegal arms trading, obtaining reliable information on transgressors seemed to have been even more difficult. Despite promises of hefty rewards to informers if their testimony proved true, examinants remained tight-lipped. John Ashton reported that detained Irish and English merchants examined upon oaths will hardly speak the truth, being sworn, I fear, but that they, by such secret means, make a gain of the Irishman. As a result, Ashton was unable to gather enough information to proceed against any such persons by name as have conveyed such munitions. Thomas Smith had a similar experience in Chester when he apprehended three Dublin merchants, including a factor for the then-acting mayor of Dublin. The three detainees revealed little more than what the authorities had already known, that is only the names of uh, Robert Panting and Stephen Cashel. They offered a few names of some of their factors, but offered no concrete details for these men. Moreover, all three denied knowing of any other merchants in Dundalk, Drada, or any other part of Ireland who deal for any sort of armour or weapons. Rather than being an indication that there were very few merchants engaged in illegal commercial activities, it is more likely that the examinant's silence on the subject was a product of how wide, widespread and lucrative this illicit trade really was, sort of one of the products of do unto others, which nobody wanted to set a precedent. John McGurk has stated that the Nine Years' War gave rise to much disloyal trading in arms. There is no denying that provisioning the Queen's enemies was treason. However, it would be difficult to argue that political allegiances had any real bearing on the commercial interests of old English merchants, since the majority of merchants who were trading with O'Neill were also trading with the Crown. 
Potential profits drove trade, and it is unlikely that many merchants struggle with the ethical dilemma of supplying two opposing armies. So we only need to look at Afghanistan, Iraq, and Iran to know that. Assuredly, there would have been some who considered supplying the enemy a moral infraction, but the majority of merchants saw this war as an opportunity to profit. Only those who entirely abstained from trading with the enemy, be it O'Neill or the Crown, could be considered to have been restrained by their political allegiances, and this would seem to be the case with Nicholas Weston. Having become a citizen of Dublin City in 1577, Nicholas Weston had already achieved civic prominence in the decade preceding the Nine Years' War. In 1587, he held an annual term as sheriff, and between 1591 and 1622, Weston held one of the Dublin Corporation's 24 aldermanic positions and served a term as mayor in 1597-98. As an alderman and leading member of his community, Weston commonly represented the suits of his fellow merchants, civic officials, and municipality in front of the Dublin administration and crown. But besides being an upstanding member of the, of the Dublin Corporation, he'd also gained the favour of many state officials prior to the outbreak of war. As early as January 1589, the state papers reveal Weston as a valuable source of intelligence on political and military affairs at home and abroad, even so far as detailing the exact movements of Richard Stanahurst, the exiled Dublin jack of all trades. Despite severe trade restrictions with Spain, Weston was permitted to continue shipping between Ireland and Spain because of his value as a state informant. And by the time of the war, the trust reposed in Weston as a reliable source of information was demonstrated by the fact that Fenton recommended employing two of Weston's agents as spies in Spain. Like the rest of the mercantile community, Nicholas Weston sought to profit from this war, and there can be little doubt that Weston conducted business with O'Neill prior to the war. However, with the exception of one accusatory declaration, there is no evidence in the Irish State Papers to suggest that Weston continued to do so after O'Neill had been proclaimed a traitor. Throughout the war, Weston regularly provided the administration with intelligence as well as necessary supplies for military service. He contributed to the vittling of the Crown Army, buying and transporting large shipments of grain and other provisions from the continent on a regular basis. More impressive were Weston's two entrepreneurial but risky fishing ventures to Newfoundland, by which he intended to feed the entire army and the people of Ireland. It didn't work out very well, actually. <laughs> Um, actually, his cargo had been stolen by some of the English shipmates and sold off in England, <laughs> never made it to Ireland. In 1598, Weston, along with five colleagues, devised an ambitious plan for the erection of a hospital for sick and wounded Crown soldiers, as well as for the apparelling of the English army. While the charges for these services would be borne by the citizens of Dublin, Weston and his associates argued that this would not only reduce the Queen's apparelling expenses, but it would also create a local manufacturing industry and thereby stimulate the local economy, because it was definitely suffering during this war. Weston also assisted the Crown with much-needed financial backing. Because England failed to meet the fiscal requirements of its gov government and military enterprise in Ireland, the Irish Council regularly resorted to borrowing money from palesmen, usually old English merchants and aldermen. Treasurer Sir Henry Wallop issued numerous certificates on loans secured within Ireland, in most of which Weston actually figures quite prominently. Although repeatedly promised repayment of the next expected, next expected treasure shipment, Wallop's certificates clearly show that these debts were rarely satisfied, and Nicholas Weston's efforts to obtain the satisfaction of his debt were quite typical for the, of the situation for many palesmen. For instance, in late 1595, Weston loaned the administration £500 towards the feeding of English garrisons. Although promised repayment in 1595, even at this early date, Weston didn't seem to think that his debts would be satisfied. So looking for a better way to, or satisfied within Ireland, so looking for a better way to get his debt repaid, he went off to England with letters from the Irish Council recommending that the bills be honoured there. It's, uncle it's unclear whether this debt was answered in England at this time, 
But Weston continued to loan the administration large sums of money over the following war years. So it's very possible that this debt had been satisfied either partially or, or in full. And we do have certificates saying, you know, that he, the orders for him to be repaid 200 pounds here or 400 pounds there. And in this respect, he seems to have fared better than a lot of his colleagues who were loaning the same amounts. Nevertheless, it does appear that Weston had constant difficulties acquiring repayment <coughs> in Ireland, and he made regular trips to the English court to sue for payment. Notwithstanding these difficulties, however, Weston was remarkably well rewarded in other ways, and this, did provi this provided him with strong incentive to continue serving the Crown. It appears that Nicholas Weston's services were greatly appreciated by the state, and he received much favour from Irish councillors. The exceptional regard for Weston was demonstrated in 1596 by Crown Patent to, uh, for a four-year licence to export 300 packs of sheepskins, 300 packs of wool, and 50 tonnes of tallow, for which he was required to pay little or no customs duties. This grant was issued directly from the Queen rather than any of her representatives, uh, thus signifying an exceptional, it was an exceptional liberty that really sort of symbolised his exceptional status within his community. Nowhere was the Irish Council's favour more apparent than in its endorsement of Weston's unsuccessful suit for the fee farm of the Dublin Customs later that same year. Weston was backed by Secretary Fenton, who heaped tons of praise on his many services. But an interesting feature of Fenton's recommendation was the recognition of widespread official corruption within Ireland. Fenton contended that Weston was a more trustworthy candidate for this post than the rival uh, candidate, the Chancellor of the Irish Exchequer. According to Fenton, because Weston was not a member of the Dublin administration, he was uncorrupted by its fac factional politics and could not hope to have friends who would turn a blind eye to any corrupt activities. Undoubtedly, Weston's religious persuasions helped mark him out as a man amenable to the interests of state and worthy of reward. Indeed, Lord, Lord Chancellor Loftus asserted that in his 40 years in Ireland, he had not seen another man of Irish background as conformable in religious matters and as conscientious in public matters as Weston. Notwithstanding administrative praise for Weston, he did come under some criticism. Interestingly, this didn't actually issue from the state, it came from within his own community. Weston was an exceptionally enterprising individual, and as Colin Lennon has pointed out, the exceptional favour he enjoyed from the state irritated his peers, who felt that his advancement ran counter to the spirit of guild collectivism and restriction on private undertakings. Moreover, while his participation in the established state church was praised by officials like Loftus, it also set him apart from the majority of his community. This confessional divide and the special favour Weston enjoyed left him subject to the, to the derision of his colleagues, probably because their allegiances were not as unambiguous as Weston's were. The only existing attack presented to the state concerning Weston's crown loyalty was provided by one Robert Eastfield. Eastfield accused, we accused Weston of suspicious dealings with O'Neill and claimed that Weston had provided all things of importance the Earl needed, including the imported lead. More seriously, Eastville alleged that when O'Neill had come into the state to allay suspicions, Weston had personally snuck O'Neill out of the city before the state could act against him. Possibly unaware of the great liberties afforded Weston in trading with the Queen's continental enemies, Eastville complained that Weston had violated the embargo on Spanish trade by shipping 10 ships of corn, 60 tons of Newfoundland fish, and on an annual basis, other prohibited wares into Spain. It's kind of funny that he had fish then, but he didn't have it for Ireland. Um, Eastfield also claimed that Weston had imported large quantities of gunpowder, however, he had no idea what had happened to it. The only traitorous activity to which Eastfield could assert with any certainty was that Weston had fished a place called the Band and other places in the north of Ireland for salmon, which he conveyed to Her Majesty's enemies. All this, Eastfield argued, Weston had managed because, by means of the great credit and countenance that none dare speak against him. 
Eastfield also drew attention to Weston's more suspicious relations. Like the rest of the old English community, Weston had relations who supported O'Neill's rebellion. His brother, Richard Weston, was a very suspicious character, and he provided, while this, this same brother provided the state with an incredible amount of valuable uh, intelligence on rebel activities, he was also identified as an employee of O'Neill, and it seems that he was actually one of O'Neill's secretaries. However, other than Eastfield's assertion that Weston had sent goods to his brother who then conveyed them to O'Neill, there is no evidence to suggest that Nicholas Weston aided O'Neill in any way during this rebellion. Sorry. There we go. Okay. It appears that no investigation was conducted upon the receipt of Eastfield's charges, and there is no other evidence contained in the estate papers to corroborate allegations that Weston participated in any illicit trading during this war. The experiences of the loyal Catholic Baron of Delvin are in stark contrast to Weston. Delvin served the crown valiantly in a military capacity, claiming to have killed and or apprehended 246 traitors between 1596 and 1600. Yet in 1602, Delvin died in prison while awaiting trial for treason on trumped-up charges. Or they seem trumped-up. We don't have any evidence to really say that he did do anything traitorly. However, accusations against Weston were immediately dismissed without any further investigation because administrators believe that such charges were made the rather as we conceive because he is a Protestant. Although it is impossible to determine the sincerity of Weston's Protestantism, especially since it was a profitable life choice, his selection of Protestant marriage partners uh, for his own children suggests that he was strongly in favour of the state religion. It was further held that local criticisms of Weston did not have any legitimate basis, but that they stemmed from jealousies of his commercial success and his great favour with the state during a period of widespread poverty and disenfranchisement. Weston appears to have been an ideal subject, or the state certainly considered him one. While his impressive material assistance to the state cannot alone be absolute proof of his crown loyalty, the fact that Weston provided these services, or seemed to have provided these services exclusively to the crown, is a strong indication. Furthermore, he was willing to take exceptional risks to provide these services without assurance of immediate compensation. Although he profited from these activities and stood to profit even more once the war concluded, there's still no way that he could have guaranteed himself the immense favour of the state. The fact that he received such favour marked him out as exceptional. Thus, it seems to be his religious persuasions which played a large part in protecting him from administrative scorn, thus putting him in a unique position as a trusted Old English servitor. Thank you. Thank you.